Wednesday morning was a very normal start to the day for me. Um, just had my breakfast. I was sat in the kitchen waiting to take Nathaniel to school when suddenly there was a bang, followed by screaming and crying. Nathaniel had fallen halfway down the stairs. And he was in a heap at the bottom of the stairs, literally crying his eyes out. He said he'd come halfway down, lost his footing and went head first. He hadn't hurt himself. How on earth? You know, when you're 10, you bounce, don't you? But he hadn't hurt himself. He was absolutely fine. Took him to school, dropped him off, driving back, there was another bang. This time, somebody clipped our car wing mirror and knocked it in. Again, no damage. How on earth? No damage happened in either of those situations. I do not know. But you know, it reminded me, when you wake up in the morning, you have no idea what the day holds, do you? No idea. God does not give us that kind of information. We have no idea. There are some days when if you knew what was coming up, you'd stay in bed. Do you ever have a day like that when you think, if I knew what was coming up today, I'd have just stayed in bed? Or you might have had a week like that, or even a year like that, and just hibernate for a while. Because we don't often know what lies ahead. Who's still watching the news with great anticipation? (laughs) Who has lost the will to live when you put the news on? One of the questions that pollsters um, keep asking at the moment is knowing what you do know now, would you have voted differently in 2016? Having been able to glimpse something of what is coming, would you have voted differently? One of the writers in the Times has um, this week managed to put out a list of 70 possible scenarios for what will happen in the next few weeks. It'll probably be number 71 that actually happens. And some people go to incredibly unbiblical lengths to try and work out what the future will hold with regards to Brexit. Just look at this from the Telegraph. I quite like that. But you know what? We have no real idea what the future will hold, do we? Not the immediate future. We don't know how everyday life will pan out. God often doesn't reveal that to us. We can vaguely or vainly hope for the best that it will all work out. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? What are you hoping for as we approach Christmas 2018? Well, today is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent, for the vast majority of people, means Advent calendars. And that's probably about it, isn't it? Who has an Advent calendar? That's quite a lot of hands. Who has one that's not chocolate? There's something else. Anybody got one that's just a window? That, that's, that's very... I used to have those as a kid. I haven't had one for years that's just a window. Anyone got anything that's like got tools in it or like bulbs or something obscure? Because you, you seem to be able to get everything in an advent calendar these days. But I learned something this week, that if you go back in the history of the church, you go back three or 400 years... Advent didn't start on December the 1st. Does anyone know when it started? Anyone want to have a guess? Any church historians in the room? Go on, somebody have a guess. Put me out of my misery. Four Sundays before Christmas. Christmas. No, it's even further back than that. 1st of November. All Saints Day was the start of Advent. Just imagine a 55-day chocolate Advent calendar. And during that whole period, what people used to be taught about was things like the second coming, 
Hell. The judgment of God. Death. Redemption. Some of these big, weighty themes of the Christian faith. But if you go back even further to the first centuries of the church, the church barely celebrated Christmas at all. It didn't really do a lot about Christmas. There are a few early carols dating from the second century, but not a lot. Because people would largely have said, well, Jesus is already here. He's come. He's arrived. He's here by his Spirit. What we want to look forward to is what is coming next. To celebrate Jesus' first coming is rather like being 55 and still celebrating your 18th birthday. You know, you're celebrating what has already happened. So what they would do was look forward to Jesus returning as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we don't celebrate Christmas. I'm not suggesting there isn't a lot to be gained from thinking about when Jesus came for the first time. But what I am suggesting is that we need to put that in the context of what is to come. That Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the one who will return. He is the one who will be with us forever and ever. So we're asking this question, what child is this? He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's open our Bible, shall we? Revelation 21, verses 1 to 9. Right near the back, page 1181. It's entitled, A New Heaven and a New Earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among them, among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Let's just briefly pray again, shall we? See, I am making all things new. Lord, I want to really pray that if we're lacking that sense of hope, that sense of vision this morning, that as we unpack this passage together, Lord, that you will just open our horizons, broaden our vision as to who you are, Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? An amazing passage. And it really, what this passage is, is, um, if you like, the beginning of the culmination of God's plans. The, the passage in context of the book of Revelation, it comes after the millennium, 
comes after the judgment of Satan and then the judgment of the dead. And it's almost as if the curtain is rising on the glimpse of eternity that we will see towards the end of Revelation. You know, I think God is incredibly gracious, isn't he? We may not see what is happening with our everyday lives. We may not know what will happen for the next 24 hours. But we do know the destination for where we're heading if we're followers of Jesus. We know where we're going. Because, you see, how we view things in life can change our perspective. If we have a hope that goes to that kind of picture, it changes how we deal with the here and now. I saw this this week. I rather like this. Just look at that for a minute. Can anyone spot the plate that is the confusing one? I think it's that one. Yeah? Once you've seen it one way, you can't unsee it and see it the other way. It's quite strange. But it changes our perspective. I'm going to get rid of that because you'll be looking at that and not thinking about any of the rest of it. I'll go back for a minute. If you change the way you look at things, everything starts to change. Now, Revelation is a complex book. You know, if you've read it, you will realize there's all kinds of themes going on. There's all kinds of different imagery going on. But at its heart, I think it's actually quite simple. I came across a commentator who summarized it in just three things. Revelation, the book, shows us the uniqueness of God. It shows us that the God that we worship is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, who is the sovereign creator God. Secondly, it shows us that Jesus wins. That Jesus is the victorious Lamb of God who will return in great glory, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we will reign with him forever. And thirdly, it offers us the hope of being part of God's gathered people. The gathered people from every tribe and nation and tongue who have worshipped Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. But it is written in a specific style. And it can be quite off-putting. You know, sometimes you open Revelation and you think, what is all this about? You know, it can read a bit like a Hollywood movie. You know, there's all these terrifying scenes of battles and all this strange imagery. Well, what it's written in is a style that we call apocalyptic literature. Revelation and apocalypse mean the same thing. It just means things that we see about God. And it's a very unique way of writing. The end of Daniel is very similar to it as well. But it was a common way of writing at the time when John wrote this book down. There's 25 other books, at least 25 other books, that are not in the Bible that are written in a very similar type of way with all these images of heaven and terrifying battle scenes. Now, it's not a narrative book. It's not like the Gospels. It's not a a book that tells us exactly what has happened. But nor is it some kind of allegory that means something totally different to what we see on the page. But rather, it's its own style. It's visions, it's prophecy, it's praise. And you know one amazing thing? Is it's gloriously true. It is gloriously true. So as we read this this morning, we come to this as God's word. It was written by John the Apostle as an old man. And it's visions that he has seen of what God has graciously allowed him to glimpse of the future. And this is what we find in this chapter. Now at some point, when I'm feeling brave and courageous, we will do a series on Revelation. It is the most incredible book. Um, We will get round to that. But I think that's probably enough sort of background on it for us to get going. What does this talk about? It talks about a new heaven and a new earth. We are restless as human beings for newness. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But the vast majority of human beings are restless 
for newness. It's almost Christmas. Have we all done our Christmas shopping? Yeah, no, a few shakes of the head, a few nods. No, I haven't done any really yet. Um, But two years ago, somebody did a survey, and they worked out that the average household in the UK spends £473.83 on Christmas gifts. It's quite a lot of money, isn't it? £473.83 on new stuff. That's not food, that's not on those kind of things, just on gifts. The Great British Wardrobe Report. <laughs> Anyone read that? John, have you, you know? No, no. It found that the average man in the UK spends £100 a month on clothes. <laughs> £100 a month. I'm looking out and thinking that probably isn't a reality. <laughs> What do you think the average woman spends on clothes? <laughs> Five grand. Do we think it's less or more than the average man? Shows our ingrained prejudice, doesn't it? It's significantly less. The average woman spends 74 pounds a month on clothes. Now, here we go. Why do people spend money on clothes? Obviously, you have to spend money on clothes from time to time because they wear out. But why do you think most people choose to spend that amount of money on clothes? Does anyone want to give me an answer? Makes them feel good. You've hit it in one. Most people buy new clothes, not because their old ones have worn out, not because they need something specific, but because it makes them feel confident, makes them feel good, makes them feel new. Almost 80% of people give that as their reason for buying new clothes. Think about all kinds of other industries that rely on us wanting to look new. The cosmetic industry, that relies on us wanting to look as young as we possibly can. You know, unless you're sort of under the age of 20, you you don't normally go into a shop and say, I want to look as old as I possibly can, and as ragged and as rough as I possibly can. That's not what we do. We want to look new. We want to look fresh. The car industry, that relies on people wanting new cars. If we all said, right, actually, as long as it goes... And as long as it's going to get me to where I want to go, I will drive it and that will do. The car industry would fall apart. It, it just keeps going because people want new things. And yet for all our attempts to remain new, we fail miserably, don't we? Our bodies wear out. The things that we buy wear out. It doesn't satisfy us. But look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What we get here is this amazing vision of God making everything new. Permanently new. We can do newness, but we cannot do permanent newness. We cannot make anything permanently new. And God who spoke creation into being by the power of his voice in Genesis 1 is the same God who speaks eternity into being by the power of his voice in Revelation 21. And the sea is gone. The sea is gone. Why? Well, because the sea in Jewish thinking was a place of chaos. It was a place of untamed power. It was a place of commerce and trade. There is no need for any of that. All chaos is gone. So it's kind of symbolic here that the sea has gone because all that, there's no need for it anymore. God has become all in all. Now, the new heaven and the new earth, what we see here is not some vague, vain hope that we think might happen. But if we're a follower of Jesus, this is a glorious reality of what we can look forward to. 
Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 16 to 20, oh, sorry, 18 to 21. I've put it in such small print, I can barely read it. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the children of God. God will make all things new. And then we get the declaration from the throne. You see, it's one thing to have a new home, isn't it? I'm sure many of us have lived in new homes at some point or other. That doesn't change who we are. But what the voice from the throne says in this passage drastically changes everything. See, we live with the side effects of sin upon us, don't we? We fail to be what God wants us to be. We fail to be what we ourselves want to be. We fail to be what others hope we would be. We let ourselves down. We let other people down. Our bodies let us down. We become ill, and eventually we all die. That's not a very attractive proposition for life. But that is the reality of the human condition outside of Jesus. Now, graciously, God has stepped in in Christ. God has stepped in. This is what we've remembered as we've taken bread and wine. That our sin can be forgiven. It can be forgiven in the here and now. But you see, once sin is forgiven, all kinds of other things start to change in eternity. You see, in the moment, in this life, we will catch a glimpses of eternity. You know when you pray a prayer and God graciously answers? It's a glimpse of the coming kingdom. You know, if we pray for healing and we see God graciously answer, it's a glimpse of what is to come. But there is so much more. There is so much more. This is not all there is. Look at verse 3. God will live with us and we will be his people. God will live with us and we will be his people. Just pause for a moment. Let that sink in. Just think about living permanently with the tangible presence and reality of God with you. You know, at the moment, we know that God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. We know that through what the scriptures say. We may know it through our personal experience. But here, God is living tangibly in the midst of his people. And this was always God's original plan. You see, Adam and Eve lived with God in the garden in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. And you just get a glimpse of what he had in store for them, had things not gone so terribly wrong, had they not disobeyed him. But here in the city, the new Jerusalem, we find that God moves in permanently. And there is that permanent relationship. And look at verse 4. Tears, death, mourning, crying, pain. All this stuff is gone. Because these are all, if you like, the side effects of sin. Death only comes about because we rebel against God. Mourning, crying, all these other things are just the result of the decay that comes in when we disobey God. But once the stain of sin is gone, then all this stuff goes with it. I once tripped over a pew in St. Paul's Cathedral. If you're going to injure yourself, do it in a good location. And I tripped over this pew, and I, I won't go into details in case anybody is particularly squeamish about toes, um, but I split a toenail. It was really, really painful. And then this toenail started to grow at the wrong angle into my foot, and it was incredibly painful. Now, thankfully, my sister-in-law is a podiatrist, so it's always useful to have somebody in the family on hand to deal with these kind of things. But 
until I had this minor op that I needed to have on my toe to put it right, I was in absolute agony. If anyone's had anything wrong with your toes, you know, it's not that serious, but it hurts. And the worst experience I've ever had, I think, in terms of pain, was trying to walk down Helvellyn with a toe that was about double the size it should have been and was really, really hurting. But you see, once I'd had that toenail removed, everything subsided. There was no real problem there because the cause of the problem had gone. What we see happens when sin is removed, when Jesus deals with sin on the cross, and when he comes again in glory and announces that victory, then in eternity, all these impacts of sin are gone. I don't know if you can imagine what life will be like waking up without any pain in your body. Nice. be fantastic, won't it? I don't know if you can imagine what it will be like to wake up never having to worry about the future because the future is now with God forever and ever. I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like to never have to mourn again, to never have to think about crying again because God has made all things new. See, this is the end result of what God has done through Jesus. Do you live with this as the backdrop of your life? Do you live with this kind of hope? There's something else in this passage. It's all an incredibly encouraging passage until you get to the end part. And what we find at the end is a really stark choice. Verse 8, we find that those who don't believe, or I think as the, the NRSV actually puts it, into sorcery, which gives it a rather stronger meaning than it does in the NIV, idolatry and liars... Basically, those who have rejected God's ways in this life and have gone and done their own things, well, they are assigned to the second death in the fiery lake. And this is a passage, again, if you look a bit further forward into um, Revelation chapter 22, we find that Eden is restored, the new Jerusalem is complete, but outside remain those who are doing those kind of things. It says in verse 15, it says, the dogs, not literal dogs, but the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, and so on. It's basically another list of people who have rebelled against God and have not sought the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers. They remain outside God's glorious future. They remain outside these amazing images of God who says he is making everything new. Why? Because sin hasn't been dealt with. They haven't come to the place where sin can be addressed. You see, this message here is very stark. The glorious image of the future that those who called on the name of the Lord can enjoy is not actually the default image of where all human beings will end up. Without accepting Christ, what do we find? There is actually no answer to humanity's sin. There is actually no answer to humanity's sin. So what we find here is not a picture of universalism. This is not a picture that all roads somehow lead to God. But it's only through Jesus Christ that we come to this amazing hope. Those who have rejected God actually find that that rejection has eternal consequences. Why mention this today? Well, we've already heard, Chris was saying earlier, about inviting people to hear the good news. Yeah, there is a responsibility. We're a commissioned people, aren't we? To hear the good news, uh, to tell people about the good news of Jesus. To share the hope that we have, if you're a disciple of Jesus, with other people. Because this future that we have available to us 
is dependent on us coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. It's the stark choice of this passage. You see, the cross is God's rescue, but not all will respond. What would this have meant for the original readers here? Why do we think John puts this in? Well, just think for a moment. This book was written to Christians who were undergoing persecution at the hands of several Roman emperors, possibly Nero or Diocletian. And you imagine if there was just a handful of Christians and there's the might of the Roman Empire that stretched from Scotland to Iran coming against you. You'd have thought, what chance have we got of surviving this? And yet actually, the hope that is written here is the hope that kept them going. It's the hope that has kept the church going for 2,000 years. That actually, there is a future in eternity with Jesus. So where is your hope? Is the hope of the first part of these verses the hope that you live with? You see, if we don't have hope, there is a danger that all we do is we retreat into sort of romanticised versions of the past. We can't look ahead. And we can either live in pain or live with a a sort of distant view of of what has happened before. And this time of year, as we approach Christmas... Some people come at Christmas with a kind of blurred view of Disneyfication. You know, the Christmas is going to be sort of magical and amazing. But you know, other people come to it with actually a view of despair. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. He's a minister in an inner city church. And he was going around a shopping centre and he was trying to do some, you know, box pops type things for carol service. And he was just asking random people, what are your hopes for Christmas? And he spent the morning in the shopping centre and he said, at the end of it, he was deeply disturbed. Not one person was hopeful for Christmas. Not one. And he said, actually, what people said was things like this. I don't want to spend time with my family. It never ends well at Christmas. Just don't want to do it. I can't face it. Another person said, I don't have family or friends and I just cannot face the loneliness that this time of year brings. Another person said, I can't deal with the painful memories. Another person said, well, it's a financial burden that Christmas places on me. I've got to buy all these presents for my kids, and I can't afford them. Another person said, well, somebody in my house will drink too much and get violent, and I just can't cope with that. You see, for some people, the past had caused so much pain that they just actually couldn't contemplate the future. How our world needs the hope of Jesus how we need to share this hope with those people around us, with the brokenness of a world that presents, you know, oh, I wish it could be Christmas every day, but the reality is a million miles away so often. See, without Jesus, we ultimately have no long-term hope, do we? We can hope for bits and bobs along the way. We can hope for a nice time with friends and family. A load of our children will hope for presents and they will enjoy them, and that is all great and good. But until you get that bigger picture, until there's this glorious backdrop, then actually there is no ultimate hope. Sad thing is, a lot of the world live with no real hope. But you know, I also think it's a really sad thing that many Christians really don't live with that much hope because we get so sucked into the here and now that we don't look at God's bigger picture. Think back to those plates. Perhaps some of us just need to change our perspective this year and think about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Where's your hope? Is it in your attempt to buy newness? Is it in your attempt to try and find a magical Christmas, whatever on earth that means? Is it in something else? 
or is it in the Lord Jesus Christ? Just watch the screen for a minute, and then we'll pray together. Let's pray together. Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let those who hear say, come. Let those who are thirsty come and let all who wish take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things say, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.